Hey, welcome to the offices of Upworthy. Oh, thank you. I'm really excited to be working here. Oh, we're excited to have you. Come on, let me show you the workstation. I'm afraid that I don't have a lot of experience with the whole content posting thing. Oh, it's super simple. You just come up with a title and then attach content to it. Not too good with titles either. Oh, okay. That's why we came up with this cheat sheet. Oh. All right? So there's three easy steps. Uh, first, pick a platitude from column A. Uh, you'll never believe, absolutely riveting, looks can be deceiving. Then, pick an adjective or verb from column B. Heartwarming, mighty, empower. Then slide in your subject. All right? Then sum it all up with a banal cliche truism from column C. You won't believe what happened next. These first four photos were okay, but then the fifth left my jaw on the floor. Oh, this pregnant wife's letter to her dead husband will grip you. Isn't that one pretty limiting? Oh, you'd be surprised. Okay, let's do an example. This is a video about a dog being rescued. Now, if we go with our cheat sheet, we do, ah, uh, you'll never believe this heartwarming, uh, Pregnant wife's letter to her dead husband that will grip you. What? Stewie didn't even mention a pregnant wife. Oh, no, trust me, it's gold. Now, your turn. Let's have you make up a story about this seven-year-old who spoke to Congress. Okay. <clears throat> um, guess what happened? Good. Now, Gumby. Incredible. You're on your way. Column C. My heart smiled. Okay, now, put them all together. Guess what happened when this incredible seven-year-old spoke to Congress? My heart smiled. That's simple. Hey, Doug, you'll never believe the article I just wrote. I had to do a double take. Good job, Jim. OMG, you guys have got to try this coffee. Amazing? That could be an understatement. Absolutely riveting. Jazz from a canning breakfast took it from home, and the taste was something I wasn't expecting. I thought the temperamental coffee machine was going to ruin my day. But then I saw what it printed, and it changed my life. The most interesting, yet depressing, yet horrifying, yet hilarious, yet heartwarming Gilbert cartoon will be in your mind forever. Okay, now if we just fill in your W-2s, we can... Larry? <laughs> well, good morning. We're starting a brand new series today called Clickbait. If you're not familiar with Clickbait, you've probably seen it. It is the modern phenomena where on news feeds and all over... Um, Websites, they have these little gripping headlines which are designed to get you to click on it, usually so they can get ad revenue. And it's rampant all over the internet, and new sites, in fact, fake new sites have sprung up all over the place trying to get you to click on certain things, inspiring many sites, like Snopes, example, to try and find out what stories are true and which ones are fake. Uh, recently, you've probably come across a few bizarre ones. One that came across was... Uh, NASA warns disaster is near as planet Nibiru, 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 uh, heads for Earth. And shockingly, that was indeed a clickbait story to get you to, to click on it. Uh, another one that came out recently was President Obama was going to uh, abolish the Statue of Liberty because it was offensive to Muslims. Also a false story that came out in the clickbait. Uh, one of my favorites was from Los Angeles. My wife and I once went to the Star Trek uh, experience there. Apparently, we were the only ones that went. Uh, this story was uh, parents arrested after modifying their eight-year-old baby's ears to look like Mr. Spock. Also not a true story. Uh, another one came out just this last week. Um, Ruth uh, Bader Ginsburg said she'd leave the Supreme Court if Trump was elected. Also false. With all the clickbait out there today, it's hard to find out what's real and what's not. There are websites like Snopes who have a dozen or so researchers who are trying to keep these hoaxes at bay before they spread. Now, before we think it's the end of the world civilization, how do you know what is true and what isn't? We're going to dive into that a little bit today. 
But this idea of clickbait's been going on for a long time. In fact, if you're familiar with the uh, Pulitzer, a uh, prize given out to honor accomplishments by celebrated journalists as well as authors, uh, you may not realize that Joseph Pulitzer, the prize is named after, could have been called the father of clickbait. In the 1890s, when he was publisher of the New York World, he perfected the art of enticing headlines to become America's most popular newspaper. Though it was staffed with legitimate reporters, the world uh, used bold, inflammatory headlines to draw on readers and was known to bend the truth or enhance facts to sell newspapers. Now, his competitor was William Randolph Hearst. He launched a competitor called the New York Journal. He raised the stakes by doubling down on the coverage of crime news, out, outing uh, politicians and social life involved in illicit affairs, and publishing p- photos of scantily clad models, all in an effort to increase readership. He even accused of provoking the Spanish-American War in order to sell newspapers. Now, in those days, it wasn't called clickbait. It was called yellow journalism, which was named after two things. One, the little yellow kid that they used in comics in order to draw people in, as well as the old newspaper material, the pulp, that would actually lead to a yellowing if you left it for too long because it was so cheap. The goal was simple, lay out the bait and hook the reader. Now, I'm sure you've seen the National Enquirer. Uh, which always has these sort of crazy headlines designed to bait you in while you're sitting at Kroger and pretending not to look at it as you're looking at a candy bar, uh, but you still see that at the corner of your eye. My brother used to be a huge fan of one of the spin-offs from the National Enquirer, so much so that his entire walls growing up as a teenager were covered with articles from the Weekly World News, which has some incredible clickbait, things like, Dick Cheney is a robot, that was on my brother's wall. Another famous one, half man, half alligator, was found in the Amazon. Bat Boy, a reoccurring character, cited in the New York subway. Another classic, the chimp's head was put on a human body. As we saw earlier in the video, uh, the methodology behind writing an effective clickbait is pretty simple. You tease the reader with a provocative phrase or sketchy fact that makes it so compelling they can't wait to click on it or read the rest of the story. So what does it have to do with the series at Horizon? Well, in my years of teaching, it's become clear to me that many people think they know what the Bible's about. They heard a phrase from a pastor, a priest, a Bible study, a news clip, and they think they know what the Bible's really about. And we're going to look into some of the facts and find that some of the things we perceive to be the Bible's main story is almost the opposite. In the series, we're going to look at, was Judas a really greedy bad guy? Was his suicide a cowardly, unforgivable act? Or was he actually following his heart and embracing an honorable calling? Were the disciples righteous old rabbis, carefully following the teachings of Christ to build the church? Or were they just a raging, ragtag group of selfish, immature teenagers who ignored a great deal of his wisdom? Does God answer all of our prayers? Or does he say he does not listen to the prayers of those who do not treat their spouses well? We'll look at that in a few weeks as well. Today, I have a late on a bait for you. Today, we're going to look at the rest of the story. Today's headline is bombastic, it's insane, it's enticing, and maybe the last thing you thought you'd hear in church. Today, we're talking about zombies. Zombies are among us. They are real. And you may not know it, but you might be a zombie yourself, as we're about to find out in the next few moments. So sit back with me as we dive into the possibility that you and I might be zombies. Well, it is amazing how much there's an obsession today with zombies, with the zombie apocalypse, and with the walking dead. In fact, I have a, a, a really sweet Christian woman who goes to our church, and 
invited me over to her house. And as I got there, I discovered that she loves The Walking Dead and she made appetizers, in fact, that told me an awful lot about her. I mean, there were appetizers that were, uh, those are almonds and, and a pizza dough there with a pepperoni inside. That's shortcake with frosting on top for the brain and that's a cheese ball for the skull. And I suddenly realized how obsessed society seems to be with the idea of The Walking Dead. I love movies that have a spin. One of my favorites is Sixth Sense. And of course, a 16-year spoiler if you didn't see it. Uh, you're following Bruce Willis as the main character. And as a psychologist, he's trying to help a young boy who thinks that he sees dead people. And you think the whole movie's about helping the kid. And then the spin at the end is that Bruce Willis is one of the dead people that he's been seeing. And the whole time he's dead but doesn't even know it. Now, how can that be possible? How can movies like Warm Bodies, like we just watched, how can this concept like Sixth Sense, how could you be dead and not know it? Well, the Bible has an amazing uh, truism, an amazing claim in this regard. It says that we are not inherently bad people who do bad things. We're not inherently bad people who need to be good We're inherently dead people who need to be made alive. So though we do bad things, being good isn't going to solve the problem. The reason we do bad things is because we are dead inside. There's a sense in which our lying, our gossip, our lust, our loneliness, our fear, our depressive, these are dead spots within us that God wants to awaken in us. Because if you're a bad person, then you can try harder to be good. But if you're a dead person, you need somebody else to bring you to life. And the Bible's metaphor here, the Bible's description here is so shocking that while many other religions can help good people or bad people be better, the Bible claims to take dead people with dead spots within themselves and make them alive again. It does it in two ways. One, it tells us that God's law... The Bible, the Ten Commandments, it was designed to be a revealer and that God's love was designed to be a resurrector. And as you wrestle with this, you're going to discover that maybe or maybe not that my real problem in life are these dead spots that I need someone else's help with. And instead of using the law, the Ten Commandments and the Golden Rule to fix the problem, we can use it to do what it was intended for, to diagnose the problem. Let me show you how God says it. He says that God's law is a revealer. It's like an x-ray. It was designed to show us the problem. The law was never designed to be obeyed. God's law was not designed to solve the problem. It was designed to reveal the problem. What problem is that? That we are dead inside. Don't we even use that phrase? Oh my goodness, I just so am dead inside when we feel bitterness. I'm dead inside after that occurred to me. And as we wrestle with these things, we say, well, what's the solution? I guess I need to try harder to be a good person. I need to try harder to obey the Ten Commandments. I need to try harder. But bad people can try harder to be good. But dead people need somebody else to bring them to life. I was talking to a friend this week. He said he grew up in a real strong religious home. And as he has begun to study the Bible and get to know the main message of the Bible, he's realized that much of the religious upbringing he had taught him the exact opposite of what has brought him to life. He said he grew up in a very staunch uh, Catholic home and the catechism was everywhere, 
but he never really learned about loving God or about really studying the Bible. And as he's dialogued with his parents over the last couple of years as, a, as an adult, he said, now, why didn't we learn about how to love God, how to know God, how to experience God, how to depend on God? He said, you don't love God. You don't know God. You obey the commandments. You obey the catechism. That's what the Bible's all about. But the Bible says something so shocking that the law will not fix your problem. It will just reveal you have a problem. Here's how Paul says in Romans. He says the law, when the law comes into your life, it enters into your life. You, you hear about something. You hear about the golden rule. You hear about something to do. And when the law enters your life, what happens? The offense abounds. What? Things get worse when you discover the law. Your dead wrongdoing, passions, lust after anger, lust after uh, objectifying somebody else, these lusts, actually get worse. They get aroused by the law and they bear fruit in your life that are not healthy. Think of the law like a revealer. It's those tablets you give your kids at night to see if they're brushing well. Tablets are good. They're helpful. They're not going to they're not going to brush your kids teeth. They're not going to fix your kids cavity, but they are helpful. You pop in a tablet, you open your mouth and all of a sudden it reveals. Oh, my goodness. Your mouth is far dirtier than you realized. Oh my goodness, that's a problem? I was supposed to brush there? I was supposed to floss there? God put the law to diagnose and reveal to us, Oh my goodness, I didn't realize just how dead I was. I didn't realize how broken I was. I didn't realize how flawed and frail I was. Now, let me show you practically how this works. The more you bring the law into your life, the more you want to rebel against it. And you can see it in your kids, you can see it in your grandkids, but I bet you can also see it in yourself. You say to your kids, all right, now you can't use your phone. Do they go, okay, well then I want to obey that. Immediately they want to use their phone even more. You say, all right, you've had enough. You can't tell me what, when, when I have, I'm a grown adult, I can tell you. All right, we're cutting you off. All right, that's off limits. I wonder why it's off limits. I wasn't thinking about going over there before, but now that you've told me it's off limits, I want to go check it out. You see, the law came, and now I'm curious about rebelling more. You're walking along in a park. You're enjoying the sidewalk, and you see a sign that says, stay off the grass. You weren't thinking about going over there, but now you've seen a sign that says you can't go over there. So you go. You can't tell me what to do. The law came in, and it aroused in you a rebellion. It it exposed a dead spot in you that says, I'm not going to let anyone tell me what to do. You may regularly struggle with your diet or sugar, but when you make a vow that I'm going to not eat sugar, everything sugary looks wonderful. Tell your your 20-year-old son, 30-year-old son, don't date that girl. How's that work out for you? The offense abounds. He's going to marry that girl. He gets aroused by, well, there must be a good reason why mom and dad are trying to keep the good stuff from me. Turn to a bunch of giggly kids and say, now stop laughing. And all of a sudden, everything, when they have all the little girls over, becomes funnier than it ever should be, right? I remember one year, several years ago, we decided as a staff to go to a monastery for a weekend of silence as a discipline. And uh, some people are not mature enough to handle this discipline, I might add. So we head into uh, the dining room, and they have a silent dining room. And so for the whole weekend, we're going to not talk. And as we head in, 
all of the monks are, are feeding us food, and they all look like celibacy have not treated them well. And they're dishing out the food, and just the humor of the whole thing, the music's going in the background, oh me, oh me, oh me, hey, I thought I was in Monty Python for a moment. And so I am trying to, to, to just respect the discipline and all that. I come up to the, the monk who looks a lot like Grumpy from uh, the, the Seven Dwarves, and he's got a, a, an apron on that says, I'm Sicilian, kiss the cook. And he slops whatever it is on my plate, and I walk and I sit down across from my colleagues on staff. No talking in the silent dining room. I have never wanted to talk more in my life. So you look up at the person across from you. And it just gets increasingly awkward. Now, many people are probably connecting with God. I'm not mature enough, clearly, to. And so as I'm sitting there, I, I suddenly get this idea that would not have been aroused had I been allowed to talk, but now it has been aroused that I'm not allowed to talk. I pull out a, a, a slice of bread and a knife, and I begin to work. And now everyone's intrigued in my eating. They weren't intrigued before, but now they're like, but they can't talk. And then, in a way that only is funny when you're there, and it's funnier than it should be, I, I lifted up my loaf of bread, or my little piece of bread, and I carved the word high into it. And everybody, there's a spit take, and, and the monks escorted me to the talking dining room for those who couldn't handle. Now, this is what's interesting. Now, see, if we think the law is a solution... The Bible says it's not a solution, it's a diagnosis tool. It's designed to show you your lack of self-control. It's designed to show you what anger and bitterness and unthankful looks like. It, it not only diagnoses your, your, your deadness problem, but it also shows that trying to obey the law doesn't produce a solution. It's a dead solution. He says, my deadness, what's dead inside me, takes opportunity when I hear about a good thing like the golden rule. It's a good thing. When I hear about the Ten Commandments, those are good things to do. But when I hear those things, the deadness within me takes opportunity from the good law, and it ends up producing in me all manner of evil desire. And so the more I try and obey the law, the more I break the law. I had a friend who's been in a Bible study for the first time in a while. He's been coming to Horizon. And as he was in a Bible study with another guy, they began to study what's called the fruit of the Spirit. He said, yeah, I'm working on those. I'm working on joy this week. A few months ago, I worked on self-control. And his Bible study leader said, you don't work on these things. What do you mean I don't work on these things? No, it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You need more and more God in your life so his fruit can come out of you. So it's not about you working harder to be joyful or to be loving. Dead people can't work harder to be alive. You need to more and more invite God's wisdom, God's life, God's joy, God's self-control to awaken those dead spots within you. Because when you find out you're impatient, you've discovered a dead spot. When you find out that you can't stop lusting even though you promised yourself not to do that again, you don't need to try harder. You need access to a source of life that could awaken you. Because if you just try harder, you're just going to produce all manners of evil desire. This guy in the Bible study said, I've never noticed that. It's not the fruit I work on. It's the fruit, singular, of the Holy Spirit. Now, when Paul's describing this idea that we're dead inside and we need someone to resurrect us, 
In the book of Galatians, he contrasts the works of flesh, your own efforts, from the fruit, singular, of the Holy Spirit. When you try and work harder, one of two things happens. You have a good day. Oh, man, I am really, really self-controlled. Wow. And then you start getting arrogant. I am really, really humble. Have you seen my humility trophy? And you sabotage the very thing you're working on because you get arrogant about it. Or worse, you don't live up to your standards. You didn't hit that goal. You didn't accomplish what you said you should do. And then you feel shame and guilt. I failed again. How do you break the arrogance fear cycle? You need access to somebody else's engine. Notice the diagnosis tool says these are things that are a problem. If we were to take one of those dissolving tablets and find out what's broken in us, it says the works of the flesh are evident. Adultery. Fornication. The difference between that is, is wanting to have sex with somebody who's not your wife prior to marriage. It's called premarital sex. Uh, wanting to have sex with somebody after you're married. It's called extramarital sex. But it's more than that. These are ideas that we lust after power. It becomes our God. We lust after money. It becomes our God. We lust after. We are controlled by our desires to, to need other people's approval. More than that, lewdness. You're controlled by those lusts. Idolatry, making something in your life more important than God. Hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition versus other-centered ambition, dissensions, envy, murder. And Jesus goes so far to say if you hate somebody in your heart, you've got a dead spot, not just actually murdering them. Drunkenness, medicating those dead spots, revelries and the like. And I look at that list and go, oh my goodness, all that's on the list? I'm a lot more dead than I thought I was. I had several dead spots that occurred to me this week with my kids, with my spouse, before my God. And the law is designed to show you just how broken, just how how many dead spots are within you that need to be awakened to life. And the reason it's the fruit of the Spirit, and look what the fruit of the Spirit looks like. And it doesn't come in doses, it comes all at once. When the Spirit begins to operate in your life, all these come simultaneously. Because it's His Spirit. You start having a love that's actually joined with a kind of joy, which is joined with a kind of peace that transcends understanding. And that's combined with a long-suffering or a patience towards others. Because you suffer long as you're patient with them. At the same time, you can be kind and good, faithful and loyal, gentle and self-controlled. And while, while a, a, the walking dead can, can fake one of these, you can't fake all of them at once. And so what the Holy Spirit, the power of God in your life does, is it says, I can give you access to all these at once, rather than just trying to fake one at a particular time at a particular place. Because many of us have peace. We said, I got the peace down. But that peace is produced by ourselves because we say we made good decisions, unlike those people who made bad decisions, because of the money I put away and, and the savings that I have. And so that peace that you produced traces back to a sense of your own efforts, but it doesn't trace to humility. But when God begins to awaken your life, you get both peace and humility. You get both drive and other-centeredness. Some people have self-control, but the reason they have self-control is because they want to be the kind of person who has self-control. And they don't have the joy that goes with that self-control because they even hate it. They say, I'm a perfectionist. I can control what gets done, but I just hate myself for it because in doing it, I drive myself crazy. Just ask my spouse because it drives him crazy. 
It drives her crazy. And you can, you can fake the self-control, but you can't get the self-control to joy at the same time. But when God begins to awaken you, you get all of it at once. And you may grow slowly into it, but you get all these things beginning to flow into your life. I mean, many of us guys are self-controlled. Guys typically don't cry as often. We're not as emotional. We say, yeah, we're very self-controlled. Much more like God here. Maybe. Or maybe it's because when we cried when we were 10 or 11, somebody came alongside us and says, don't cry like that. Don't act like a girl. I don't want to be a girl. And so the reason we're self-controlled is because we feel, feel superior to girls. If I cried or felt... And then we go through a time of grief. We lose a spouse. We lose a father. And when it would be naturally and very healthy to grieve, because our self-control was, was actually prompted or aroused by the law, we're not able to grieve properly when we need it. But when God awakens you, these dead spots, you can have healthy grief. You have self-control. You have a kind of self-control that's motivated by joy. You can be kind, but many of us are kind because of our personality, because of our, our Myers-Briggness. But beyond just self-control, often those of us who are kind are people-pleasers. And so it's hard for us to speak the truth. We so need people's approval that we can't speak the truth to say, hey, that was wrong there. That's inappropriate there. And we're not real, we're not real courageous because we're going to risk the relationship if we bring up that issue. But when the Holy Spirit awakens you, you get both the kindness, maybe even your natural temperament, maybe not. That kindness begins to flow over you and people begin to say, well, you've been religious your whole life or not. I'm noticing a change. You've got a joy I haven't seen before, a kindness I haven't seen before. You've got a self-control I haven't seen before. And you begin to notice it in yourself. On the other hand, somebody confronts you about a dead spot, and here's what the walking dead sounds like when your spouse, when your kids, when a, a 360 review, they bring something up to you, and you don't want to admit you found a dead spot. You say, well, I just can't do it. Well, I'm only human. Well, people are people. You know, the dead spots, dead spots, we all make mistakes. Well, men have no needs. Gossip. I mean, we all do it. Yes, a problem, but it's not that big of a problem. No, it's a dead spot. Which is why, when you try to live this out, what it shows when the law only reveals your problem, it doesn't solve your problem, God designed the law in such a way that it would show what is so unique about Christianity. Many other religions can help bad people be good. Even good people be better. But only the Bible claims to help dead people be more aliver. To breathe resurrection into their life. That's what the Bible... And, and that's why the fruit of the Spirit is a, is a, a metaphor of, of life, right? How does a squash grow? How does a zucchini grow? Does it try harder? No. It stays tapped into the source of life, the vine, the tree. And the way we grow, the way we were designed to overcome these dead spots within us is by tapping into the source, the vine of joy, the vine of life, the vine of wisdom. That's how we grow, through dependence, through surrender, through staying close and tapped into that connection. So the law, it's great at diagnosis. It's lousy at the solution. It can teach you where you've got a dead spot, but not bring you back to life. Which is why Paul says this, he says in Ephesians, what happens when you become a follower of Jesus, you don't get more religious, you don't become a better person, you get made alive as God comes and lives in you. And you were dead in your trespasses, 
And now you do become a better person only because parts of you are awakened that weren't awakened before. You find yourself loving, not just to get your own needs met, but truly loving unconditionally because you care about others in a way you never have before. That's what God is, is, is offering to us, is that his law is a revealer, but his love is a resurrector. His love is a resurrector. It's, it's fascinating how the Bible describes this. Paul will again say later on that the Bible was designed, or God designed, to bring resurrection into your life. And that's not just to get you to heaven one day. That is true. Or that's at least the Bible claim. I believe it to be true. You may not yet. But let me explain why resurrection is not just about your body eventually getting to heaven. It's about everything in life according to the scriptures. You might say, well, I don't necessarily believe in that. Well, that's all right. Let me tell you why you'd want to. Here's, here's what Paul says in a passage. He says, God gives life to the dead. And he calls all things which do not exist in your life right now, the self-control you don't have right now, the hope you don't have right now because you're really discouraged. God can bring to life hope, bring to life love, bring to life the things that don't exist right now in your life because they're dead and dormant. How does this happen? Well, the Bible claims that we are designed as three parts, body, soul, and spirit. And our soul has three parts, our wants, our thoughts, and our emotions. Now, whether you believe this premise or not, let me tell you why this premise works. The Bible says that as human beings, we were born with a dead spirit. We are the walking dead, but we don't even know it. We're born with a soul that is dead, so we have dead wants. We want things that are bad for us. We have bad thoughts. We think bad things. My life's not worth living. We think bad things. I'm better than other people. We think bad things. Actually, I know better how to run the universe than God, and we worry. We feel bad things, fear. They aren't just bad thoughts that are out there. They're dead thoughts in here. I'm dead when I envy. I find a dead spot when I'm jealous. I find a dead spot when I objectify another human being. And those aren't things I do out there, bad things I need to repair or make up for. They're dead spots within me flowing from what's broken and dead within me. And lastly, we have a body that's dead and dying. Which is why in, in the book of Genesis, God turns to Adam and Eve and says, the day you rebel against me, the day you don't trust me, not you're going to be bad people, on that day you will die. But if you read Genesis, they don't die. They're still walking around. Yeah, they're walking around. But they're walking around now with something they didn't have before. Shame. Guilt. Rebellion. Demanding their own way. A lack of, of harmony in relationships. And it begins to flow through anything and everything. And so here's what the Bible's main message is. When you say, God, I want you to be my forgiver and leader, it's almost like saying, God, I want you to, to forgive me for, for all the, the broken thoughts I have, all the broken wants I have, all the broken emotions I have. But more than that, God, I need you to come in and resurrect me. So when you become a follower of Jesus, not just religious, not a churchgoer, but when you become a follower of Jesus, here's what the Bible says happens. God sends a brand new spirit. His Holy Spirit comes and lives in you. And you now have a brand new engine. You have a Holy Spirit, an alive-to-God spirit, an a, a, a engine with all those things you wanted, peace and joy and contentment and self-control and courage. You have that now living in you. Well, then why are Christians so hypocritical and why are they so judgmental? Well, here's why. 
Here's how you grow as a Christian. Once you have that Holy Spirit living in you, you still need to let it bring to life your wants, let it bring to life your thoughts, and bring to life your emotions. As the book of James says, the the word implanted in you is able to save your soul or deliver your soul. What does that mean? He can deliver you from those wants. You've wanted things that are bad for you. But now when you find one of those dead spots where you're wanting something bad for you, instead of trying harder, you say, God, I need you to to breathe some life into this area of my life. I need access to a higher power of wisdom, a higher power of of self-control. God, breathe life into my wants here. Teach me how to want to love my spouse because I don't know how. Teach me how to to be patient with that teenage boy because I don't want to. I'm out of resources, God. I need you to bring that want to life. God, my family struggled with depression for generations. And it's been no lack of psychologists. It's been no lack of counseling. It's been no lack of medication. We've run out of options. God, I need an engine in me that you could breathe into me hope. That you can teach me how to take your thoughts. See, my thoughts tell me God is against me. God doesn't care. It's hopeless. It's never going to get better. I'm going to instead, by faith, trust your thoughts. I am with you. I can work all things together for good to those who trust God. And so the minute you become a follower of Christ, you get that resurrection power in you. But then that resurrection power begins to to help you grow as a follower of Jesus as you begin to have better wants, different wants, more alive wants. You begin to want the things that are good for you. You begin to think the things that are good for you. You begin to feel the things that are good for you. And the real hope of Christianity, and this might be just too crazy for some of us, but it's the real hope, is that we have a body that's dying. And as you get older, you get more and more aware that your body's dying, don't you? When you lose people you care about. Might be a father, a grandfather, a spouse. And as you put that person in a casket, you don't think to yourself, this is normal and natural. You think, what is wrong with this place, this world, that good people die? And God said that Jesus came into the world not just to save our spirits, not just to save our soul, but Jesus historically, physically actually rose himself bodily from the grave with a promise that he would raise us from the grave as well, that we could be in heaven, a real place for real people with real bodies. So in heaven you can hug people, you can eat. Jesus ate fish, he ate um, honeycomb before his disciples to say, listen, i got a real body here. And if you will hook your wagon to me, if you will trust me for resurrection, I can resurrect you now in this life, but when you die and buried, I can resurrect your, even your body to be perfect. So I don't know if I believe that. That's so crazy. Let me tell you why you'd want to. That means when grandma died and didn't recognize you, didn't remember your name. It means when your spouse passed away and in those last moments he couldn't eat or she couldn't eat. And you're just thinking about the next life. The hope of Jesus is that that person you loved has a brand new body in heaven. With no more Alzheimer's. And no more sickness. And no more aches. And no more pain. And no more cancer. That is why resurrection is at the heart of Christianity. You say, well, I don't know if I believe that. It sounds crazy. Do you see why you'd want to? Wouldn't you want to know that you could have an engine to live your life now? 
that transformation is possible now and that you could have a body and know the very people that you loved and cared for in this earth, that is the hope of resurrection. And that is true, not only on the spiritual sense, but we can see examples of that in the, spirit, in the physical realm as well. CNN did a story in 2014 of a dermatologist named Gerald Cartman. He was a marathon runner. He was 66 years old. He was in great health. And all of a sudden, he has a heart attack. And in that heart attack, in one moment, in one second, 20% of his heart dies. And of course, many of you work in Children's Hospital and other places. You know more about the heart than me. So I'll just reference this story from, the, from CNN. The working theory has been whatever heart damage you have, you have permanently. Permanent damage in your heart is permanent damage. You've got to live with it. And they began to work with stem cells. And they found that they could put stem cells in a dish and they could grow heart muscle. So they did an experiment to see, could they put the stem cells into his heart and could they regrow his muscles? And so they inserted it into him and they were shocked to find out it did not grow new muscles. It fixed the heart in a way they never imagined. Here's the quote from the article. The doctor says, in fact, the more we learned, the more we realized that stem cells themselves don't turn into new heart muscles or blood vessels. They can make heart muscles and blood vessels in a dish very nicely, but in a living organism, they seem to do, what they seem to do is to secrete factors, an X factor, that wake up the surrounding heart muscle. That you've got a dead spot in your heart. And something from the outside of your body has to be inserted in to wake up that which is dead. And that is the message of Jesus. Depending on your own resources, you've tried that. You've tried to kick this habit. It's not a lack of discipline. In fact, every time you you make another commitment to do it, you arouse and you end up failing more. You need something from outside yourself to come in and secrete some kind of factor that you're not even sure what it is and say, I need some kind of factor to wake up this dead spot in my heart that will not let go of the bitterness toward my mother-in-law. It will not let go of the anger I have toward God for what he had happened or not happened 10 years ago. I need something outside myself to come into myself and awaken me. God, breathe life in me. Breathe wisdom into me. Breathe unconditional love into me. Breathe God control into me. I am the walking dead and I need access to a source greater than me. So this week, here's my challenge. This week, I want you to look. Look at your life. Examine your reactions. Examine your thoughts, your feelings, what you want, what you think, how you feel. Look for parts of your life that have died this week. Look for parts of your life that have died. And I want you to pray just a simple prayer. God, I want you to wake me up inside. Awaken me to pleasure. Awaken me to joy. Awaken me to hope. And because we have such a tendency to excuse or rationalize our behavior... Go ahead and use the law for inspection of dead spots. Remember that list we had earlier? Here are some spots I want you to look for this week as you're looking for dead spots in your, in your relationships. It might be lust. It might be uncleanness. It might be over-desires, over-desiring something. It might be hatred or contention or jealousy or outbursts of wrath. It might be ambition, but not just ambition, which is good, but selfish ambition. 
It might be finding yourself in conversations. I found myself this week in one of these where I just I, I put a little bit of a hint of a phrase that caused a little bit of division or the possibility of dividing one person from another. And I went, what is wrong with me? Envy, wanting something that's not yours. Hating somebody in your heart. Drunkenness. See, when you don't know how to fix a dead spot, we often just medicate a dead spot. I don't know how to bring that to life, so at least I want to get it drunk so I don't have to feel it or don't have to hang out with it. I want you to look this week. Use the law as an inspection for dead spots. And then here's what I want you to try. You've tried trying harder. I want you to, in those moments, say, God, I want to use by faith your love to resurrect me. Here's a one-sentence prayer. God, bring this area to life. God, wake me up inside today. I have many of those in a given week. I, I had one uh, this week. Uh, I came down the stairs and both my kids are taking college courses during the summer and both of them started talking to me at once. And I was a little annoyed that they both bombarded me because, you know, I, I was coming home to relax or whatever it was. And so I immediately got, got impatient. I know you can't relate to this. I immediately reacted in a way that wasn't real kind. And I'm like, just be quiet for a second. And they're both like, what the size of a coffin did dead get up on? And... Uh, I said, well, let me answer both questions right. And again, the boundary wasn't the issue. The issue was it came out of a place of impatience. It came out of a place of anger. And I was going to say, I've got to try harder not to do that next time. But I realized I've had a history of being impatient. And I just started praying this prayer. God, I can't try harder to fix this impatience issue. Wake me up inside. Bring this area of deadness to life. I don't want to be the walking dead. I want to walk in the life that you've granted to me. Try that prayer this week. Dare to ask God to wake you up inside. Well, let me pray for us. Now, what a great um, theme to go out on, that God would awaken all of us to life. And you're thinking, I can't believe Chad talked about zombies and somehow related that to the Bible. I just That's shocking to me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your promise of resurrection. And Father, many have walked in today and they are in grief. And we ask that you would awaken hope and comfort to them. May have come in today and behind how good we look, there's dead spots of a, a habit, an addiction, a medication that is keeping us from becoming the fathers we want to be, the spouses we want to be, the friends we want to be. And Father, I ask that you would awaken in them a joy they haven't felt before a God control they haven't felt before. We invite your spirit to come into our dead spots, Father, and to wake us up inside. In Jesus' name, amen. As you head into your journeys today, thank you for being with us. If you came prepared to give us some offering boxes, if you're new to the church, we'd love to say hi. Third door on your left, enjoy your spooky week of the thriller that is asking God to wake us up inside.